0: Audio Conversation, recorded Monday, April twenty fifth, two 2011. Uh, this is a conversation with author Greg Bishop, and I we do not talk at all about his excellent book, Project Beta. That book is a UFO book where there are no UFOs. It's a story of Paul Benowitz and his his interactions and harassment by what amount to secret government forces. It's a very compelling and strange story. I, this audio interview is a little over two hours long. It's excellent. I was very happy with the final content. We are all over the map, and that's the way I like it. And I also have to apologize. The sound quality is rather poor. Um, I'm not sure what happened. It seems that the uh, Skype fairies weren't really uh, uh, smiling at us. Um, And also, I will add, that uh, we did get cut off a lot, uh, which was unusual. I'm not sure why. Um, Not to uh, fan the flames of conspiratorial strangeness, but um, every time we talked about reptilians, we did get cut off. And when the conversation does get snipped off, I use a little tone... Uh, that comes from the GarageBand program on my Macintosh computer, and it is a smooth jazz organ tone. And it's a simple tone, and it sounds like this. So each time you hear that little tone, something got got messed up in the recording, and I tried to salvage it as best I could in the editing. Sometimes that means that things get snipped off mid-sentence, and and I wish I could have played editor, in a way that the final product would have been smooth and elegant. Unfortunately, that's not how it came across. We covered a lot of ground on this, and I feel like we dig pretty deep. I really got a lot out of it, and I hope you do too. Please enjoy. Um, hey, uh, you know, I don't have any agenda at all on this thing uh, for, for like the discussion here.
1: You you emailed me one and I looked at it and it's like, yeah, well that's all fair game yeah sure.
0: Oh I guess I do have an agenda. Yeah that was just some some few little things but I basically I have a I have an empty piece of paper in front of me and that that little email thing was just <laughs> stuff, stuff off the top of my head. Uh hey here let l- um let me just ask about the uh, hey um you said on uh, the, the March 30th that you saw what you were referring to as a UFO.
1: Well it was it was in the air. And I didn't know what it was. So it's unidentified
0: okay. and flying, okay.
1: Well, it was hanging in the air. I guess that it qualifies as flying. I don't it's an unidentified aerial object. Uh-huh. <laughs> or was. And just uh, go
0: ahead and describe it.
1: It was um, completely black, and it appeared to be glossy. And it was like an eight-pointed octagonal star. And this was at about probably 15-20 minutes before sunset right near the beach in Santa Barbara which means that it's and it, had, it was faced out towards the beach but it was perfectly um, uh, perpendicular to the ground it wasn't leaning like a kite and then it had a little line coming out from it that looked like maybe a tail coming from the exact middle but the tail was completely straight and it had these um, regularly spaced kind of rectangular objects on it, probably eight or ten of those. Okay, I'm but looking. It was, I'm those looking, were all completely straight too and black.
0: Okay, I'm looking at the illustration you did, which is posted on your UFO Mystic site. And uh, yeah, you know, it's the, really rough. Well, yeah, but it certainly gives me an idea of what what you're describing. So, so that's that. That I'll post that on the show notes just to.
1: Yeah, everybody's going to think I'm hoaxing it because of my, because of one UFO hoax did on my friends, but. I saw this at the airport as I was leaving. And the fact that I don't really particularly care what it is and I'm not making a big deal out of it should let people know that I don't I'm, – I'm not hoaxing anything. Okay, you're not trying to profit. Huh?
0: You're not trying to profit in any, in any way.
1: Yeah, my flying instructor actually said maybe it was a kite, and I said, well, it wasn't moving one inch. I don't know. I was pretty – I was probably about a quarter mile away from it maybe. I went back and looked at the area and the place it was hanging over was a marsh like a salt marsh mm-hmm. and there's no plants in it or anything it's just kind of like a slough or something with a bunch of with a bunch of goopy salt water in it next to the beach where birds hang out and probably eat you know crabs out of the mud or something but it's right at the end of a runway so i don't know maybe it was something to do with the airport maybe it was a kite Maybe it was a science experiment from UCSB, which is right nearby, which I, I actually wrote uh, in the description. And then also I made a report to, the, to Brian Vike's uh, UFO reporting thing, and they were very interested in it, and I just said, I don't know what it is, and I'm starting to get to the point where I don't care because there's nothing can be done with it. However, if they can use that data to um, coordinate with something else that they've found, then great. I, I think that's probably be the most use they'll get out of it. So they were going to call the airport tower and UCSB and all those people. Well,
0: so they were so going to, to I, play the role of investigator.
1: Yeah, I, I don't really – I guess I could make time to do it, but I don't really care as you know too much to find out. what. You know, if I found out it's something that I didn't know that's unidentified, where does that leave me? It just means I saw something that's unidentified. And then you'll never know because you can't check every single possibility on something like that. So close to the ground, maybe maybe 100 feet standing very still and right near two places where you would you know one place you would expect to have something in the air an airport even though it wasn't moving and also right near another place where research goes on a California uh, 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 University of California school Mm -hmm. so there are a myriad of things that could have been that would make it identified but I don't really care if it is or not uh, particularly because like I said if I don't if I don't find out what it is, how is it going to change the UFO field or me or anything? It's not really. Mm-hmm. If I didn't care about UFOs or hadn't previously cared about it, I might assign more importance to it.
0: You know, it's interesting. A couple things. Um, you know, here I have a story that I'll share, which is which is. Uh, as a little kid, I must have been in junior high school. We I was at the beach with my parents in Florida, and it was nighttime. And I remember looking off um, towards the ocean and there was this light out over the ocean and it was zipping around and making these moves i've never seen before it was just like this sort of glowing pale light and it kind of zipped and hurt and jerked around and and i was i was just it was like this kind of feeling went over me you know like this you know kind of the blood almost drained from my you know the back of my neck kind of feeling you know that kind of oh yeah. my god what am i witnessing and i ran down to the beach and um, there was a family flying a kite, and they had tied uh, like glow sticks onto the kite. Oh! So had I have not run down there, I would have this great run, this great you know mysterious story to share. Um, so that was yeah. that was actually a
1: surprisingly good lesson for me. Yeah, I didn't. I don't know what to make out of it, and um, I. I if it's unknown that it's unknown, and the only value, like I said, is if they can take that data and collate it or correlate it with other data that they have, that would either identify it or add it to the database of unidentifieds. Other it, than that, I don't think there's any real value in my sighting.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, and then, and then you also say that so it was windy. You talk about the flight that day in the in your report that you wrote online that it was windy that day.
1: Yeah, it was windy, but the, the, the thing was that the tail of this thing was pointed straight into the wind, not away from it like you expect the tail of a kite to be.
0: Because mm-hmm. it does have a kind of kite-like, you know, uh, yeah. simplicity to it, yeah. Yeah. And- so I don't know. And it was a
1: very strong wind. A very, it was variable, too, which is another thing. It would have made the kite dance around. It wasn't this steady wind. It was switching all over the place, which is part of the reason why we got thrown around in the airplane and we landed, because the wind was just so unpredictable. Anyway, so I don't know what to do with that sighting. It's uh, in the hands of the UFO reporting center. I, I can't remember the name of it, but it's Brian Vike, the guy. Brian who Vike did
0: out of out of Canada, yeah. So
1: um, yeah, yeah. In fact, a, a couple things I found on his site, I've um, I've commented about, especially that this one sighting that somebody had in California in the '70s that involved um, not really like giant UFOs, but Flitting lights, um, um, unseen sort of entities or maybe barely seen, and screaming noises,
0: like an animal
1: or a person screaming in a really weird way, and then people having sort of um, night visitation things afterwards. I can't remember the exact story, but I brought it up. And then the guy actually wrote to me and said, yeah, I was the person that had that happen. They're still trying to figure out what happened. And he said, it's the only time I ever saw my father actually scared. Which makes it even creepier. I really like the story.
0: Huh? Yeah, the the screaming noise thing. There was a thing reported. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's going back. Uh, I want to say Kentucky or something like that. There was a report in a neighborhood where there were lights coming from a field, and then everyone in the neighborhood reported, you know, basically a woman's voice yelling, screaming, "Help me, help me!" And yeah, uh, you know, blood curdling. And uh, I know that Whitley Strieber covered that, and then later fictionalized it in a in a section of a book called The Grays.
1: Yes, I remember I remember the story and I remember the the uh the the the, the episode in the book. And yeah, it's it's good and creepy and I don't know how well investigated it was. It also sounds like something that could have been um gussied up a bit, but I don't know. Um but it it's it's uh if it is part of the the mythos, it's it seems to be exceedingly rare where people are are terrified to the point where people are other people are hearing them um, call out for help. I mean, uh, for for a long period of time, enough to alert so many people, and also at a time of day or evening when people were actually awake. Because I don't think this took place at like two in the morning or anything. It was like nine at night, maybe.
0: Yeah, and I keep—I get the sense of the uh, like the psychological operation where where like a, you know some sort of government study on psych- psychological susceptibility would you know project screaming noises or terrifying noises or something like that, uh, just to, you know, f- who knows why. Um, I could see it like in a, in like a combat situation where they might want to do that um, to mix up the enemy. But, you know, why would they do it in a you know California neighborhood or, or a neighborhood in Kentucky?
1: Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. Unless I know. something, unless something, you know, really weird was going on. It's not like the literature doesn't have um, terrifying or, Horrific elements to it, but it seems to be either you know really rare, or the rare the part that's not rare about it are, are people reporting that as a single individual experience, not something that other people could hear or experience at the same time or whatever. It seems to very be very individualistic the the, the frightening part.
0: And it's one of the things that certainly gets reported in the literature is um, is people experiencing people like experiencing like a, a, an event of high strangeness or like an abduction event where they will feel profound irrational terror in a way that that um, that just makes no sense at all that doesn't that doesn't like f- that doesn't match any real life event.
1: Yeah, and it, I I don't I'm you know I I don't really know what to make of it. There are several varying you know reasons why that might be going on. the The greatest of which to me is is if there is something going on that's external to them or they think it is, it is so alien, pun you know pun maybe not intended, um, that they don't exactly know what to do with it and that complete dissociation from anything familiar might be part of that that unspeakable horror. Or if you posit that there's something affecting them, maybe that external force or consciousness or whatever you're calling it, is using that fear in some way um, as a control device or a testing device or a communication device or um, whatever you want to call it. I mean, what are, what are the two most incredibly strong emotions are probably probably fear. And right next to that is any kind of sexual feeling, I guess.
0: And both of which get reported all the time in in the the, the uh, high strangeness lore surrounding the UFO events.
1: Yeah, and then the, the the one after that is kind of a you know a beatific religious ecstasy kind of thing. That's probably in third place.
0: And yeah, that certainly gets reported too. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I went through an event. Uh, this is going back. Um, Oh, eleven months ago. It's just about to be May. May of last year, I had an event in a tent with a friend of mine, and her name is Natasha. I've spoken about it on the on the uh, on these podcasts that I do, and I've also written about it where um she and I were in a tent together and experienced uh, what I can only call like like irrational fear in a irrational terror in this way that that just didn't make sense given the the situation. You know, it wasn't just like someone snapped a twig at night and we got scared. Um, it was uh, completely overwhelming both of us. Both of us felt it and described it the exact same way.
1: I remember reading this. I think didn't you post very soon after it happened?
0: Very soon, within days after it happened. Uh, probably, yeah. well, maybe it's a week after it happened. So, um, and then, uh, yeah, and then there was like a, followed up by a very profound uh, floating dream that I had. That was that was took place in the tent which is unusual because I usually don't dream about things that take place uh, you know, in the immediate we, environment. Exactly, like I tend not to dream that I'm in my own bedroom, for instance. So I'm, there I was dreaming that I was in the tent, matched everything, Natasha next to me, and um, you know, as I floated up, there was a pizza pan-sized thing in the, uh, just to, in a sort of a, a corner of the tent. It It seemed like nothing more than a a round mandala of light. And then I I continued floating up. And as far as I know, I just like, it felt like there was like a, you know, if it was a movie, there would just be like a little lap dissolve and I would be in this other realm. I remember saying to myself, you know, am I on a table? Am I on a table? Actually, what I said was I need to remember this. I need to remember this. And then I said, am I on a table? Am I on a table? Which I don't have any memory of, but I do remember saying that to myself. And then the next thing I knew, I felt like Natasha was, tapping me on the shoulder or she just announced um, Mike you're floating and then I was back in the tent and then I don't really remember waking up until the next morning
1: yeah I just had read a bit of that and maybe had not read the entire narrative because I don't remember the mandala type thing or the dream, I just remember the extremely terror-filled, and then there wasn't. Didn't seem to be any reason for it, as I remember. You mean, I mean, there wasn't like glowing things around. No, or we
0: never saw like a. You know, we didn't wake up in the morning with a burnt uh, circle. You know, um, in the in the forest there. Um, what is interesting, and, and I've talked about this. It's interesting. I've talked about this. I'll, I'll link to it. But um, I talked with Leo Sprinkle about this event, and oh. um, and he. Uh, did you know that Leo Sprinkle channels? Yes so he channeled for me and ch- in like sort of did a uh, um you know a little channeled short channeled session where he tried to decipher what may or may not have you know like taken place there and it was very interesting cuz cause, cause in this is something that sort of matches my sensibilities very nicely he just immediately went into metaphoric uh, interpretation, you know, like what the fear might represent and what the floating might represent. And he sort of painted this picture like, you know, like a, like something out of a, like a Knights of the Round Table or something like that, literally like, you know, going to the cave where the dragon is to confront your fears. And then um, the next day uh, Natasha and I felt surprisingly fine after the whole thing. And, and she shared some events of that night, which we could were like incapable of talking about that, that evening um like when the event happened we were just so f- freaked out and and uh it was strange and then uh you know both of us promptly fell asleep which is, seems irrational too just given our like my my heart rate alone would would not have allowed us to fall asleep but leo went ahead and and interpreted it was great it was really interesting and i and and um i don't know whether there's any sort of like factual clues that could have come from his channeling but it was a very it sort of took it to almost like a mythological level which is kind of where where you know, my sensibilities tend to tend to
1: lie. Well, maybe he picked up on that. see there's two sides of me on that, and that's the way I am with a lot of things. More than two sides. One is how reliable is that, and it's all covered up with your expectations, his expectations, his subconscious, whatever. And then the other side of it is it's valuable in the way that you describe it because it's it helps you integrate it or understand it better or uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, feel better about it because of the way the scenario is presented to you as, as, a, as either symbolic or mythological or whatever you want to call it so yeah there's, there's, there's two sides of that coin and that's part of the talk I'm going to give in Albuquerque I think is that people routinely ignore one side or the other there's new agers and then there's like hardcore scientists but there's precious few people that are examining these weird things from the middle From from that's why the magazine was called the excluded middle very few people that acknowledge the left and right sides of the brain for something that obviously is 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 um, tickling both. You know, all, in almost every instance,
0: that, yeah, that's interesting because this is kind of what I thought Mactonius was really skilled at it was was sort of playing that that middle, uh, you know, walking the middle path and sort of judging and juggling each side of the of the controversy or the the, the data points through his own set of. Uh, just like even keeled thought processes.
1: Yeah. I think that's why we got along so well. And also the reason we wanted to write a book together, which is not going to happen, but I'm trying to do it myself now. And what's the book? Um, just everything you've ever heard me talk about and that I talked about with Mac and that we talked about privately um, somehow made into a fictional story. I, I don't know how to describe it other than that, and I don't know that I would want to talk about it more than that because it will screw up my writing of it. And it's not a selfish thing. It's kind of what like, – anybody that's that's listening, including you, Mike, probably know that the more you talk about something, the more the energy and everything comes out your mouth and messes it up. Huh?
0: It's interesting because I don't know if – I mean I've, I just sent you something where I, I'm very much – Oh, you know, attempting to follow a uh, kind of like a dream project, which would be to do a graphic novel, which is you know, sort of very much matches my illustration yeah. style. Not so much inspired by Mac, but um, I definitely had some synchronistic events surrounding the onset of this project, um, and whether I ever finish it, who knows? And and some fiction is something I've never dabbled in before, so it's very
1: Me funny. Yeah. You know? My fiction sounds like crap. The few times I've tried to write any fiction, I hated it and threw it away. But all the stuff that, that, that you know that I was talking about with Mac, I wanted to include in this. And the fact that we had gotten to the point where we were just about to start working out a storyline and all this. Um, you know, and we decided there had to be a character and probably had to be male, but we weren't sure yet. Because it's hard to write from the perspective of a female when you're not one. Yeah. So, so we just—that's kind of what I'm where I'm heading now. And the funny thing is, now that I've tried to start uh, writing it, little um, pieces of it just come to me, and I just write them down. I'm not even—I'm not even sure if they. Uh, can you hear me? I hear you. Yeah. Paul Kimball is actually trying to call me. Oh. Do you want just to take a, a second? second? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let me see if I can answer it.
0: Okay, here's a small synchronicity that I'm adding to the mix here. During the editing process, Paul Kimball is a filmmaker and close friend of Mac Tony's, and as far as I know, he's the only person that has ever collaborated with with Mac on a fictional project, which is very interesting that that he chose to interrupt the conversation right here. He did a uh, stage play with Mac, which was called Doing Time, which was based on a short story that Mac had written in a uh, now very rare and very expensive on Amazon uh, book titled Illuminated Black, which was a collection of short stories that Mac had written while in high school and was published while he was in college. Uh, So, um, Paul Kimball interrupts the conversation. Paul Kimball, only known author that has collaborated with Mac on a fictional project, as we are talking about collaborating with Mac on a fictional project. Ooh, ooh, okay, one more little thing. Um, Paul Kimball has recently sent me... A uh, The script for Doing Time, it started out as a stage play script and it has been uh, modified into a screenplay for a film and um, he wanted me to do it in the form of a graphic novel. Uh, at the time I turned him down, just basically uh, there was no, it felt like my plate was very full and I'm doing my own graphic novel, or I'm trying to anyway, which is based on some synchronistic events surrounding none other than Mac Tony's this all gets very strange it's very sweet how this all, all played out in the moment here okay back to the recorded conversation here we go
1: okay that's over
0: Okay, right there, uh, Greg and I got cut off again. Uh, we mumbled about a bunch of stuff that ain't relevant at all to this conversation. But we did start talking about his own audio podcasting series, which is called Radio Mysterioso. And we talked a little bit about how that the, it had been down or it has been down and, and just the complications of bringing it back up and all kinds of stuff with websites and host servers and, and kind of boring stuff. But he changed the subject to guests he wanted to have for his show, and, and I'll, we'll pick up there.
1: But when that happens, I'm going to go back to, you know, try and get people like Whitley Streber on and maybe even Leo Sprinkle because that's that's somebody nobody really, really thinks about too much. And he was really cool and very helpful when I was working on Project Beta. Yeah. Yeah, he's like a, a living treasure that nobody really talks about or talks to yeah, very much. Yeah, I consider
0: much. him to be like, uh, oh, God, as far as like in the history of UFO research, he's... Uh, I mean, he's right there at every step of the way. I mean, just, you know, his, his interactions with the Pascagoula case as well as um, oh, what was the University of Colorado yeah. study that was done in the 60s. Yeah. It's so weird. I mean, the guy was, you know, started out to be a, um, you know, an academic working as a, as a professor in psychology. I think he was a psychology professor at the University of Wyoming. And, um, and now he's, you know, he's channeling, you know, after retirement. And you talk to him, and he's as he's as calm and centered as and and self aware as, as anyone I've ever interacted with. You know, he has a he has a radiant glow about him when you meet him. And uh, uh, I was at a UFO conference, and um, I can't remember who I was talking to. You know, Leo Sprinkle would walk by, and literally, like you know, the people in the know would just you know fall silent and just sort of yeah. watch him walk by with. Ugh, okay, we got cut off again, and we talked about uh, Leo Sprinkle and how what a magical guy he is. It just went on and on and on and we
1: lost it all. Sorry. The most important thing is your interactions with other people, not other souls, not your not your own spiritual journey because that's just part of it. So um, it's a weird way to talk about an abduction researcher, but I think it just like you said, it describes um, Leo Sprinkle pretty well. Yeah, that's, you know, that's fine, and it'll scare all the people off that want to be nuts and bolts and want to have it, quote-unquote, scientific and all that. And uh, that's too bad. And, yeah, parts of it seem kind of loopy and new-agey and, you know, uh, unicorns and rainbows or whatever you want to call it. But what are you going to do? Make fun of somebody that's that's got that much history behind him, that much knowledge about the subject, that, et cetera, et cetera. And it... it, it when I talked to him he still seemed grounded enough that you know he wasn't going to he's not spinning off into the void into new ageiness. he just he has just accepted that part of the experience
0: I um I have an acquaintance that I've met with um at conferences and she has shared some of her story and um she also has uh, I'm going to be very cagey here because I don't want to give anything away she's a very private person I don't want to um, say anything, but she has uh, she was very helpful for me because she sat me down i was I was at a conference and i was i was there was a certain point when I was pretty freaked out about this stuff, and she was very good about um, just uh, you know saying you know these people all are coming from different places, and as far as you know I was having trouble just the divergent stories I was being hit with, uh, especially in a conference environment where where I was making a real effort to talk to people. Uh, in you know the attendees, and uh, I heard some wild stuff, and some of it was very hard to believe and it was very divergent lots of uh stuff was uh you know seen through the light of of uh you know pink unicorns and rainbows and uh <laughs> and angels and space brothers and galactic federations and things like that and I uh was having a hard time, but she know how to say it she kind of talked me down you know she kind of said like listen you need to listen to these folks because it's only their story and you know do your judgment later after you know listening to to enough of them yes in essence she gave me like really great advice the
1: the the point is that every once in a while something profound at least to you will will emerge and i try to listen to you know a lot of people depending because my filters used to be no filters which I think helped for a long time, you know, not no filters, meaning I believed everything, but no filters, meaning I listened to everyone. Then after a while, I keep hearing the same thing over and over from, from different people. So I start filtering those out to the point where, you know, I only listen to stuff that has, um, one, some sort of a, I guess some sort of a believability level for me, or at least an interest level where it connects for me on different, uh, with with different things like, Um, like if there's a Bigfoot story associated with UFOs that really interests me but you know Space Brothers coming and telling somebody that you know they have to change their life or go vegetarian or start a group or whatever doesn't interest me in the least that's just the way I am but the thing is that you know if there's some legitimacy to some of these stories and what some of these people are saying you have to realize that, like your friend told you that it's coming through, and I've I've been hammering this on in interviews a lot too. It's coming through your consciousness, and it's coming through. Well, it's coming through their consciousnesses, with all their prejudices, all their subconscious actually, with all their prejudices, all their um, upbringing, all their psychological baggage, all their cultural models. Everything in there is is modifying whatever that pure. Uh, experience was or that pure message or whatever you want to call it and so you know you you talk about that friend that's had some some um, reptilian experiences whatever that might be you you kind of think about it that people are people are individualistic in the way they think about things and the way they live their lives but they kind of fall into groups like I like to fly but my wife doesn't but a couple of other people I know really like to fly well then that, that's that's our purse those are our personal biases but then when you're talking about something as as weird and as uncategorizable and it's so far away from daily life as a some contact with some other thing or what appears to be some other consciousness, then maybe a lot more of the bets are off and a lot more of us is involved in molding that experience. And I think I think the, the fact that these stories get out and people talk about it and 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 some have reptilians and some have insectoids and that, I think that really screws everything up because that's giving us molds to put it in, and once we get something molded, it just becomes codified, and the, the, the variety goes out of it, and and I think we stop looking. It's like you know, it's like old. When people get older, a lot of them tend to get set in their ways, and they only see certain things a certain way, even when it's blatantly obvious to a lot of people around them, especially especially younger people that they're completely closed minded about it. Does this rambling uh, monologue make No, this is good. This is good. This is good. So, so if I think something is rainbows and unicorns yeah. and I don't like it or it doesn't resonate with me or I think it's people chasing their tails or whatever, then I just ignore it, you know? But but then I'll hear, you know, that story of the people yeah. that got have those screaming entities around them. You know, what the hell is that? That touches me on some other level that is interesting to me. Or, or, um, or the and Bigfoot too, thing so. or anything to do with um, separating fact from fiction in a, uh, in a, or fact from known from unknown with, with secret government projects, that kind of stuff fascinates me, but that's my prejudice and I know it and those where I'm, that's where I'm going to find my answers if I'm finding anything and the other thing is I'm not, I'm not sitting here going eventually I'm going to tick off all the boxes and I'm going to have the answer I'm not even thinking that way. I'm just thinking of what's interesting to me at the time, what fits in with the mythology I've built up, what resonates with my personality and whatever you want, it, my subconscious and my spirit or whatever, and how does that, you know, how does that keep me going, keep me interested and maybe make a little breakthrough for me here and there. It's 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 that old thing about the you know the journey is the important thing, not not the goal. Well, they're they're both the goal. The journey is the goal, and all that other stuff. All those old tired cliches, they're tired cliches, but they they've got a lot of truth in them, I think. And it's different for everybody else, for 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 different people, especially with this weird stuff. And a lot of people don't realize that. And those are the people that get shrill and nasty, and that you don't want to really hear from anymore. And I I think they're too narrow in folks and don't really pay attention to the subconscious and what that that uh, contributes to the process however on the other hand i haven't been through what they've been through and then somebody who i trust i pretty much trust their judgment um as far as i know them like peter robbins who knows bud hopkins very well he's worked with him for many years he has a completely different opinion of bud hopkins because he's been through it with him so you know who am I to say these people are full of crap? I I can be I can be critical of it because you know when you're outside of it, it's a lot easier to be critical of it. And maybe if the people that are you're being critical of heed some of the criticisms, they can adjust their methodology to make it a little more either rigorous or acceptable or whatever. But there are parts of that research that nobody will ever accept, which which uh, those hardcore abduction researchers accept as you know. Rock bottom truth and absolute reality, even though they can't really prove it to anybody else. I think the problem comes in is when they try to prove it to other people.
0: (laughs) Very much so, and it must be—I mean, it must be like you know, running uphill in sand in a way, trying to trying to share what they've learned to a wider public. You know, I mean, however many books they've sold, it ain't that many compared to you know, you know, like if the if the story is real, and I believe very strongly that that there's something to the abduction phenomena. Uh, something very real about it. Um, if that story is real, shouldn't like shouldn't it be like the most important thing in human history? And uh, and it's somehow so easily dismissed, and uh, despite the obvious reasons, it gets dismissed with contempt. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, I could see why people would want to just shun it. That said, you know, when you look into it, and, and I've you know, I mean, Bud Hopkins has tried to hypnotize me. I've spent um, a long time. I've spent hours with Bud Hopkins alone. You know, just talking about my experiences with him. And um, he's an incredibly big-hearted, sweet guy, a good listener, and, uh, and uh, was super supportive.
1: Where has where abduction research gone in the last maybe 10 or 15 years? Nowhere. It has kind of died out. The stories are the same. doesn't seem like anything different is happening. Um, and it never really got us anywhere. I mean, what did it do? It re- I think it basically created a mythology that people on the outside think is, full, for the most part, think is full of crap, and is all hallucination or whatever, and I don't think that. However, I do think that um, it got so involved with itself that it lost perspective. So my, my uh, suggestion is abandon abduction research for like five or ten years, and when you come back, do not use hypnosis at all. All conscious recall, that's it and see what happens and also come back with no preconceived ideas about what the source of the the don't even call abductions anymore call them something else I don't know but you know the main idea here is that what you are looking for and what mythology you have built up for yourself or whatever you want to call it is going to largely determine what you're what you look for and what you find I bet if they start looking with no filters on or with some other different idea the abduction research will go in a whole completely new different direction which may have little or nothing to do with the ufo thing
0: yeah i would be very cautious to say you know in fact i'll I'll just i'll disagree strongly that that i do not think that the abduction research should be abandoned for five years though and the reason is is um i've sat in a lot of uh you know abduction support groups where people sit in a circle like a like an alcoholics anonymous meeting and i've talked to a lot of abduction researchers um At conferences, I've made an effort to reach out to these folks and talk to them on the phone. And uh, the people are, you know, the people who show up at the abduction researcher's door are people who are in severe psychological anxiety. They are, they are not going there lightly. They are going there because they are dealing with something that
1: is that is impacting their life. That's a tough one because you can't just leave people out in the cold. And I realized that when I was writing the, the talk but i think that the book writing part and the and the lecture part and the tv documentary part and the the whole thing all that should be done away with right now and, and get back to a basic helping people and trying to understand what the thing is without saying it's aliens coming from another planet to take our genes and then and and i think that does a disservice to the people that are in the psychological in, in the, uh, the in the distress too because that's the only model they have for it
0: yeah Yeah, Uh, you know, and I agree that that that, that model um, is, it seems to be, there's a theatrical end of things, and it certainly seems to be presenting itself that way.
1: As a society, accept um, evidence for things so that we can work it into our, you know, concrete reality, because that's all all anybody works with, really, as as a society. We don't worry about our dream states, we don't worry about altered states of mind, which people are in all the time. Um, we don't worry about any of that stuff. All we worry about is what is real. But what is real is very limiting in the way we have it uh, uh, defined right now. So it's really hard to get people that, you know, an, an abduction research group mainstreamed in any way. And I don't think it should be. I mean, I think it's it just... By doing, trying to do that, you're putting constraints on it which shouldn't be there. But on the other hand, having people saying it's aliens coming from another planet to collect our DNA because that's what we've been finding for many years is a result of them looking at something that is unprovable, uncontrollable, um, based on 95 99% personal individual experience. You know, if that's the case, then how do we know we're dealing with something that is as it appears? If we can't produce it on demand or have other people experience it when they want to, how how do we know we're dealing with something that's that's that is what it seems or is what we think it is? We we don't. Yeah, adapting to
0: the expectations as well as um, sort of presenting itself theatrically in a way, you know that has to that has to be. Um, you know mystifying to the individual you do you know barbara lamb yeah she tells a story where where she's yeah. very open about it and it's very interesting to hear her tell this story because she's a very sweet uh you know little grandmother from from uh california and she, and she tells a story of um uh she's you know middle of the afternoon and she's walking from one room to another in her house And she walks through one door, and then standing in the living room is a giant, like, eight-foot-tall reptilian wearing, like, a a uniform. And, uh, you know, absolutely there, solid, real, you know, lit by the bright light of day coming through the windows. And she walks up to it feels no fear at all and, and holds its hands and looks into its eyes and says, you know, why don't I feel any fear? and then the the giant reptilian you know telepathically replies uh, it says i have been genetically engineered so that you don't feel any fear and the next thing she knows she's standing there in the living room and it's dark and it's nighttime and she uh, you know like i can't remember how many hours have passed i'm going to say you know like you know 4 yeah. hours have passed and and she doesn't know quite what to make of it and um and i don't know if she i think she went through some hypnotic regression to try to make uh, you know, get some answers to that. Um, you know, it's a, it's an amazing story when she tells it.
1: Maybe it was, maybe it was a psychologically engineered by her own mind to be in a format that she could interact with or accept or whatever. And it goes all the way from it's a yeah. hallucination because she's and, been doing um, so many regressions with people and is so into it and that it just popped out of her subconscious like that. Or there is some... External agency which is trying to affect her consciousness in some way and it manifested as this I, I don't know what the answer is there I don't know if it's external or not i I think as a whole the whole UFO thing or at least the the close encounter thing of the third and whatever kind you want to call them I think there is something there that is not human that is interacting with us occasionally however past that I don't really want to make a conclusion however you know if I'd been through what you had been through or streamer had been through or any number of thousands of people I might feel differently about it you know I have not gone through what you people have gone through so I I cannot make a any kind of categorical dismissal or pronouncement on people's you know personal perceptions um, the best I can say and the most charitable I can be is, I'm fairly certain there's something outside of their consciousness which is intelligent and does affect them occasionally, some of them.
0: And I um, am very cautious to, to give myself a label.
1: That, that, that category of experience is that most people don't take it seriously. In fact, the people who, could, who might be able to do the most good in solving it or helping people don't take it seriously. But that's that's what I was saying about abduction research. I don't think I think that people that that call themselves UFO abduction researchers. um, I don't particularly care to listen to them anymore. At least their public pronouncements.
0: Oh, that's interesting. And I will say, you know, their public pronouncements are oftentimes very carefully scripted in a way where you can you sense that they have. Uh, you know research something whether it 's a case or a series of cases, you can sense or at right. least I can that they 're being very cautious and, all, and uh, uh, you know Bud Hopkins is one of the examples i 've used
1: a lot of people who you think are kind of hardline eth people or hardline abduction people, whatever, when you get them private like at the bar or whatever on a personal level, you will hear a lot different things than you would have heard otherwise and I think the the fact that they are speaking to people who have hired them to talk, and have come to see them talk. Want to hear certain things. Don't want to be freaked out by anything or confused by things that don't fit the mold. They don't do. Uh. How strange are we getting? Uh, are we getting controversial and getting? <laughs> I don't
0: know. I don't know. It was one thing when yeah. Once once you bring up the reptilians, it all bets are off. Um.
1: Uh, yes. So I wasn't trying to upset you. I'm just trying to tell you that I think it's a really difficult area to kind of make a hard and fast decision about. And then even more importantly, you things are screwed up when they when when they go public. Which is what I say about get rid of abduction research. I'm not saying get rid of it completely. What I'm saying is get rid of the public aspect of it for a while.
0: Yeah, and I and I see that as 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 a little bit um impossible maybe you know because i I think that there's a lot of people you know very deeply immersed in this and very deeply involved in it and that that immersion and involvement may be uh literally um obsessive on their part
1: yeah it might be i'm I'm talking about yeah i'm talking about suggestions i'm not saying this is what should be done i'm kind of like you know maybe if we were a little less concerned about what other people thought or about you know Selling another book Or speaking at the convention And letting everybody cheer And be happy with what we say A lot of these people I don't mean we, me Because I don't I try not to really care What people think I mean I care what people think If they think I'm being an asshole Because I don't want to be But the the fact that There are groups that support and, and individuals that support A certain way of thinking I think that does the, the study And it does the a, percep- you know, a better perception of the, 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 the phenomenon and disservice because you're channeling something into categories when it refuses to be put into categories, I think.
0: Yeah, or it will um, uh, sort of morph itself out of that category um, as soon as it gets put into that category. It, that seems to be sort of part of the phenomenon that like as soon as you, you try to box something in... Um, it defies the ability to get put in those categories, you know even, yeah. no matter how you try to force it, you may I guess that's exactly what you're doing, you're forcing it. Yeah.
1: yeah, and I'm trying to head it off at the past by trying to do something which people are not designed to do, which is not to categorize. And that's really, really hard for us to do. But you know, why not fight fire with fire and say, well, if you're going to cate- if you're gonna change, why don't we just not expect anything and see what happens? It's really hard to do though. I, I don't really know how to do that. And like you said, people are so into it and so obsessed with it that it's like the old thing about, you know, inviting the de- you have to invite the devil in or he can't come in.
0: Yeah, the stories are so strange. The stories are so profoundly weird. I I um, spoke with a woman, and I've been trying to get her to do an interview. She said yes, and, and someday I'll follow up on it. But she has a story where on one night she saw... Um, three Bigfoot in her yard. Her kids saw shadow people in the house. And, and when she ran out to find her husband in the garage, there was a, a giant triangular UFO hovering above um, basically their driveway. They were in a very rural setting. And and the UFO was flittering in and out of reality like a hologram.
1: Well, who who knows what was happening there? Was she the only one that reported this? Or she? you said her kids were seeing...
0: It sounds like her husband saw the UFO and her kids saw the shadow people, and she's the only one who saw the, the five Bigfoot in the yard.
1: Ha! <laughs> I, I really like that story because either, it, well, on the one hand, you could say, well, it's somebody playing psychotronic tricks on them. But on the other hand, you can also say that the, 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 the phenomenon is so weird and so adaptable that you get five people in the room, they're all going to see, or five people in the field, they're all going to see something different. And it's not like that hasn't happened before.
0: Yeah, and it seems like according to her story, it's very interesting. She was she was a, she's a Native American, and she, her family's all Native American. She's Canadian, and mm-hmm. she was in a she had a teepee on her yard, and a friend of hers had just died, so she went to perform like a little ritual in the teepee. She was burning sage, and pounding on a drum, um, and not much more beyond that. But you know, actually performing a ritual act, which somehow. Uh, could be you know was she using was it like a a, a ritual magic act where she was uh, inviting these entities in um, which is a very curious uh, aspect to the story and, and and that shows up sometimes where people will actually you know and I and I know that um, Adam Gorightly has a story about like you know taking acid in the seventies and and uh, and then seeing a bunch of UFOs upon. Yeah. You know actually what he did say is first he said wouldn't it be funny if we saw some UFOs and then you know upon saying that like a literally a parade of UFOs each getting more and more bizarre you know you know floated on by you know he he postulates that the act of taking acid was in essence a ritual act
1: well he can also postulate that it opened his mind up to um, a variety of things that were there to begin with or heard his call or whatever and then you know under the influence of the LSD he's you know it, it his his subconscious is free to form whatever that that experience is into whatever it thinks that he wants to see. but the funny thing is that he had a friend with him who was seeing exactly the same thing exactly exactly
0: yeah and and um uh, you know is was that ritual act? instead of opening the woman's subconscious was that ritual act somehow opening up like a doorway where stuff just rushed in it seems kind of absurd that there would be bigfoot shadow people and a ufo uh you know actually a a holographic looking ufo she basically described it as flittering in and out like a you know a hollywood uh hologram or something like that yeah uh, um, you know, was you know, where was the doorway opened? Was the doorway opened in the subconscious? Was the doorway opened in, in our three D reality?
1: Or yeah, I mean, or you know, uh, some combination. Because there, there we go using language to describe something that is probably the, the reality of it is residing in between all these words we're using. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I, I hope I didn't, you know, I, I'm not upsetting you or thinking, making you think I'm some kind of horrible, skeptical asshole. Because a lot of people I say these things to, they start getting mad at me.
0: <laughs> no, 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 not at all. The thing, what I did, when I, what I was reacting to was, was, uh, you know, I just have a very, um, I've had a lot of people, you know, say like, oh, you, you know, Mike Clellan claims he's an abductee. And I never say that, um. So because uh, it, it just from my direct experience, I have, I just I have no way to, to, to wrap my mind around that because I don't have any direct experience that, that tells me that. I have puzzle pieces on my table, which, yeah. which are very real experiences, and some of them fit uh, very tidy together. and then in a way, you know they kind of like leave a space on the table. And maybe, uh, you know, like an investigator or a UFO researcher would want to jump to the conclusion that, you know, in that blank space that is surrounded by these clues lies an abduction experience. But I just, without the direct experience, I cannot, or without the direct memory of the, anything like that, I can't, I can't make that leap.
1: Well, I think that's one of the reasons why I keep reading your stuff, and I like your stuff, and I like talking to you, is that exactly what you said, you refuse to stick it in a category. Because as soon as you stick it in the category, a huge amount of that experience is going to be slammed shut by your own mind deciding that that's what it is.
0: And, and one of the things I have been wrestling with it lately is, is, is my you know, dogmatic adherence to not putting it in a category, is that my own dogma? you know what i mean is that is that almost a i don't want to say a flaw cuz that's 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 adding judgment to the whole weirdness but is the the fact that i'm not that i'm not making that i'm not going to that next step um you know is that just as as uh dogmatic as as uh, Stanton Freeman you know calling you know calling the phenomenon flying saucers
1: you know all these years later i don't think so but the, you know
0: I don't, I, in a way, I don't think so either, but it is something I wrestle with. Yeah,
1: yeah. My dogmatism is like yours. I have an extreme dogmatism of non dogmatism, and yeah, that's a,
0: so. Yeah, we, but uh, and I agree that that's like when entering these waters, you you know, you have to um,
1: you have to keep an open mind out. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, the, the minute you make, I think, and this has been proven again and again and again in history and UFOs. I guess UFO research. Well, you can't really say about UFO research because we don't know yet but it's a you know it's a documented fact that your mind creates creates your reality to to a great extent i mean if you're going to burn your hand you're going to burn your hand but um when you get to something as weird as experience with some other consciousness or what looks like experience with some other consciousness i think the minute you make a decision about what that is that's all it's going to be for the rest of the time that you think that because it's like you said it's so pliable and you know, I, I, you know, yeah, it'll, it'll change to what we think it should be, but I think we're doing that too. I mean, we're, we're helping it along quite a bit. It might be all us in a lot of cases. I don't know. But, yeah, the minute you make a decision about something, and st- in, in, in the practical world, the minute you make a decision about something and become dogmatic about it, you stop learning. And in a, within a few years, you start looking like an idiot while everybody else has learned and gone on.
0: That's so interesting, because it seems like there's there's a need for a new guard, you know what I mean? It seems like you know like uh,
1: oh, yeah, you yeah, know, there's people
0: it, have done strong research, and that research stands on its own, and then there's there needs there, it seems like the the phenomena is is awaiting this next generation of people to come in and and take the reins and steer yeah. the research or steer the you know the public face of it somehow.
1: yeah, that's what their own selves apart.
0: So so as as I'm talking to you right now, this is so funny. I, I apologize. I hate to do like multitasking here, but like the, the email okay. is coming in and I got a note from Ann Streber, Whitley Streber's wife, yeah who wants me to do a subscriber interview and I'm not sure what this actually means. Hi there, this is Mike. I'm chiming in during the editing process. I just want to clarify something. I did in fact get an email from Ann Streber, uh, Whitley Streber's wife. This email arrived right when Greg and I were talking about podcasting and uh, the flood of podcasting and the state of podcasting on these esoteric subjects. Um, I don't know what happened for some reason that uh, little section uh, got messed up in the in the uh, recording, so it was unusable. And um, but I got to say it is it is a little bit funny that uh, Whitley Strieber's wife uh, sent me an email about podcasting. Uh, during, during this whole thing. The part that you just listened to, I said that Ann Streeper wants me to do an interview and that's not, that's not exactly what it says. Um, what she does ask is she says, I wonder if you would like to do a subscriber interview. Yeah. Another funny synchronistic interruption, um, during this, this conversation that seems sort of relevant. Anyway, back to the conversation with Greg. Who wants me to do a subscriber interview? And I'm not sure what this actually means. There's a woman named Janet Elizabeth Colley. Have you um, ever have you heard of her? No. She is a. Um, okay, I'm gonna shut this down. I I won't read it now that we're talking here. But uh, this is yeah. This is this is drifted from <laughs> like a proper interview to like us just riffing a little bit and just you know sort of. That's butt- fine. I You
1: know, I didn't. I don't. When I talk to you, I don't expect we're gonna do this show and then we're gonna. You know. <laughs> Uh, these, this is the magic of editing, but go ahead.
0: Oh, yeah. So, um, But anyway, Janet, Janet Elizabeth Colley is a uh, UFO abduction researcher who – oh, good grief. This is so perfect. She's she's a um, She has a Ph.D. in psychiatry, I think. It's either psychiatry or psychology. And um, she has a book, uh, which is on my table over there. And where did it go? I'm trying to look at it from here. I can't... She's a really open-minded, interesting researcher. Her take on the UFO abduction phenomena, she wraps the whole phenomena in higher consciousness. Yeah. As opposed to Beings in metal spaceships coming here to to uh, to extract sperm and ovum for their own nefarious purposes. Um, she she's you know very much focused on higher consciousness and very much focused on on uh, the the transformative process. Uh, you know the spiritually transformative process that can take place in the individual once confronted with these with these. Um, here, here's the book. Once well, confronted with these uh, encounters, her, her name of her book, and I'm holding it in my hand now, is Sacred Encounters, and, and the subtitle is Spiritual Awakening During Close Encounters. And she's got a, She's a, she's super open minded, and, and um, in maybe I, uh, you know, like I haven't talked to her. I've read most of the book here. I haven't talked to her directly. You know, maybe she's a little. Pigeonholed in her own point of view, but I think that that that's just human nature, and I think it's just important that all this these these uh, puzzle pieces get brought to the table.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's a different pigeonhole, at least, and and if she's non-dogmatic about it and open-minded, which it sounds like, there's a good chance that she is. You know, I I I would applaud that. I applaud somebody who has a different point of view, sticks with it, and. Um, makes everybody else realize things that they didn 't before that now if she starts talking you know if she starts getting smiling a lot and wearing long robes then uh, white robes then i 'll start wondering about her but <laughs> if she 's trying to communicate a different way of looking at these experiences to a wider audience and not just a not just a narrow audience of of um, people who are into the spiritual part of it um, that that would really interest me. Like uh, you know, in the way that Terrence McKenna opened, but everybody up to that aspect of that, or the way that Rick Strassman opens everybody up to that aspect of possible abductions, or, or, um, or any of the you know the big giant heroes that I always mention, like like uh, John Keel and Jim Brandon and and uh, Greg Little and Jacques Valay and all those people, they they're non dogmatic, but they really want people to notice an aspect of something which of the of the experience and the phenomenon which seems to be routinely ignored but just keeps coming up over and over and over again. Yeah, there's a spiritual component to it. There definitely is. What we call a spiritual component, but because it doesn't fit in with the the God of science part of it, people routinely just ignore it. Unless you're just a real spiritual person, in which in, in, in which case you're probably locked into some sort of religious aspect of the spiritual and not that part of our brain that that uh, is not concerned with survival and science and all that stuff, if you know what I'm saying.
0: Very much so. And I've, I've um, you know, the one thing that I keep on bringing up on over and over again, just because I find it so fascinating, um, is that the people who report this phenomena, the close encounter, like the abduction phenomena, the contacting phenomena, or the experience, or however, whatever vocabulary word you want to use, will talk yeah. about, the you know, it's it's so common that they'll say like, oh, and then I started channeling.
1: Yeah, that's part of my talk actually you know pay attention to the other part of get people who are not scientists interested in the, in the subject like some artists or yeah. or even lawyers or I don't know what you want to somebody that comes at the, at, the, at the problem from a different point of view and a different set of values and a different way of study that doesn't involve let's put this in a lab and reproduce it because obviously that's not working
0: and it's interesting because that—that's almost the criticism that—that that, um, but Hopkins got that he was in fact an artist and he didn't approach it like a scientist, uh, which is which is in in I mean whatever I like you know, he was. You look back at the history of this phenomena, and he stepped into um, uncharted territories. You know yeah. that, that you know he was making it up as he went along, and I think he would agree with it. I and and um, you know I and having met with him directly and having talked to a number of people who worked extensively with him, he is cautious, you know, and maybe he wasn't cautious about every single thing uh, in the way that someone doing Monday morning quarterbacking would like, but um, uh, <laughs> I find his, his books Monday morning quarterbacking would like, but um, uh, I find his, his books to be guess, really interesting. Did you ever read a book called um, Sight Unseen?
1: No, because I heard him talk about it with Carol Rainey once, and I made fun of it at the time because he's, I, I went and watched their lecture they said, "Well, the reason we can't prove any of this is because they're all invisible." It's like, "Well, that's circular logic. How are you going to get anybody interested that way?" But maybe I should have. Oh, maybe you I should.
0: Have. You should read the book. And in and, uh, and there's the, the book is sort of subdivided into two. Ch- uh, the format is that there's a uh, a chapter where Bud Hopkins will discuss a case, and then Carol Rainey will write about that the the, the modern. Uh, research that is that is looking into the same phenomena, whether that's like modern right, research right. that's trying to wrap its mind around time travel or like yeah. modern research trying to create some invisibility thing or modern research that is trying to create some sort of mind control influence in someone. The way I read it uh, is I just kind of skipped over all of Carol Rainey's chapters and then just paid very close attention to the, to the chapters that Bud wrote about the phenomena. And that's the book where I feel that that uh, Bud Hopkins uh, really jumped into the high strangeness aspect of the whole phenomenon. Uh, And there is a lot of invisibility stuff in there, but it's fascinating. It's a really good, it's a really good one. And it has the spooky sort of eeriness that I have to be honest, that I do find quite seductive. I like those stories.
1: Yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, maybe I should read it. And like I said, I, I can disagree with somebody I can and and but the thing is when I say that, that and I'm I have no real credentials to say Bud Hopkins is full of crap or David Jacobs is full of crap or whatever and I never have. But the th- the point is I think that you and I and everybody that's interested has a right to disagree with somebody and point something out that you think is wrong while not saying they're all you know just because this thing's wrong, everything else is wrong, which is the mistake that a lot of people. In the in the podcasting world, that some of these people make, it's like okay, that's not true. So everybody, everything else you 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 say must be untrue or full of it. It's like, where, where, where did you know that that's completely unfair and wrong? It's wrong and unfair for in 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 any case, unless somebody's making you know criminal accusations or and those or, or, get
0: those get made sometimes.
1: So yeah, those get made sometimes too. That's the other thing. I mean, if somebody is convicted one time for a crime, does that mean that everything that they've done in their life is has been a crime, you know. Let, did they raise a family and were they loving parents and all that? And then they, they they wrote some bad checks knowingly. Does that make them a bad parent or somebody you shouldn't listen to? No, it just makes somebody it makes them somebody you shouldn't accept checks from. Yeah, you know. And if 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 Bud Hopkins says you know uh, uh, he thinks that there's a worldwide invasion going on of, of many different alien races using us for our DNA, I don't happen to agree with them on that. In fact, I think he's probably quite wrong. However, I'm not going to throw away the baby with the bathwater. He has exposed a lot of you know valuable information about people who had some strange experiences and made that available to the public. And I think that's the value in what he, what he's done. Um, and then, like you said, some of the some of the weird stuff that's in that book and some of this off the track, out of the box, non uh, traditional. Um, you know, not in the program <laughs> kind of stuff that fascinates me. Carla Turner said this to me a long time ago, and she and I, I keep this close to my heart. She said, "I think the answer is going to be in the anomalous things, not it, not in the stuff that everybody agrees what's going on or that follows the script. It's going to be in the weird stuff that doesn't seem to fit." She said, "I don't know how it's going to do that, but I think that's you know the the anomalies are where the answer lies because this whole thing's an anomaly."
0: Yeah, and, and it's interesting you brought her up. She is the one one of the one researchers that really had an influence on me, you know, sort of early on as I started looking into this, which is, uh, I mean, I guess the f- I read Communion in 1991 or 92, and I know that her books came out in the mid-90s. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, I interviewed her, and then after I did the interview, we kept in touch by phone, and we started talking once or twice a month. and. She gave me a lot of behind-the-scenes, valuable information on personalities and leads and all this that I could follow up on, stuff that she didn't talk about publicly or put in her books or discuss even with some other researchers. And I'm sure she discussed things with them that that she didn't talk about with me. But, you know, just for that fact and for the fact that she really didn't care what people thought and was such a maverick, that's why I really liked her. And I was, you know, I was so sorry when I heard that she passed away. And I sort of kept in t- touch with Elton for a while, and then that trailed off too. But at the time, it had a huge influence on me, just just like it did with you.
0: And yeah, it's interesting. And here's like a researcher that, um, you know, had her own set of experiences, uh, yeah. which is which is very – you know, those are the folks that I – I've, i I kind of made a list up one time of like you know researchers that have had their own set of experiences and then researchers who don't and tried to see yeah. if there was any kind of uh you know what showed up you know was one more love and light or one more nuts and bolts and and uh, it you know I, it was such a short list that it was hard to like you know make any sweeping statements but um hey so here like when Bud Hopkins started out so this is like the synchronicity thing when Bud Hopkins did his very first UFO case he was uh. You know, I think he, he kind of just started researching it just because it was interesting. But he had a discussion yeah. with the, uh, the, the guy that ran the liquor store across the street from him, which sounded like a typical uh, New York City character from the 1970s. And you know, uh,
1: Yes, I, I very well remember that and how it was in the Village Voice. He wrote a an uh, article about it, and then it grew, grew from there.
0: Yeah, so the, the, the person that he interviewed was the guy across the street, so one witness that he knew. And then he went to the apartment building, which I think was called the Stonehenge Apartments. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah which is got kind of like like and that was over in Fort Lee, New that's Jersey a whole or something. another
1: level of yeah of like, uh, symbolism there.
0: Yeah, for instance, if I was like a script writer for The X-Files and and I had written that in a script, I would, you know, I would expect that Chris Carter would shut me down and like, "Okay, that's that's all nice, but that's too obvious, you know." <laughs> uh, so then he goes to the, to the Stonehenge apartments and says, oh, like, you know, maybe there was a witness. You know, they have doormen at these apartments. And uh, maybe I can find a witness who was you know, working as a doorman. So he walks up and talks to the doorman. And, and as they're talking, they kind of look at each other and they say, hey, wait a minute, I, I know you. And the other guy says, yeah, I know you too. Uh, Bud Hopkins had delivered a painting to this apartment complex and it wouldn't fit in the elevator. So him and the guy had to carry it up the stairs. I think that's. Oh the story. Yeah. So he actually. Uh-huh. So he basically shrugged his shoulders and he's like, "Huh." My very first UFO case where I played the researcher, and I ended up knowing both the witnesses. Witnessing.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. That and he and he, you could see him sort of shrugging his shoulder and sort of like, "Huh." Well, what do you know? And uh, and my mind was reeling. It's like it's like my mind was like, "Wow, that is almost more important than the than the actual story." And the story was like, yeah. you know, very much the little tiny diminutive aliens. With uh, right. taking soil samples with scoops that look just like uh, the scoops that were used on the on the when you know our, our astronauts landed on the moon. Yeah,
1: which is a whole another level of symbolism too. Like, why would they have to look like that? You know, everybody practically everybody knows what those little scoops look like. So either the a- aliens, if there are any, doing this are using the same kind of scoop, or these guys expect to see these guys holding these things, so that's what showed up.
0: And that, and that, very much so. And 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 uh, Mac Tony speculated on this beautifully. And and that was actually one of the illustrations I did in the Crypto Terrestrials book. It was a cute little diminutive alien, like with his little soil sample scoop. And all I needed to do was Google NASA moon landing scoop, and and there's like pictures galore. And and everyone in yeah. the planet knows exactly what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah everybody that even if you weren't alive at that time which i was and i think you were yep i was so i remember
0: watching it live on tv yeah i was
1: yeah me too and it's it's um you know what i still haven't gotten a copy of that book really yeah patrick said he was going to send me one twice and i still haven't seen it and you you wrote the the, the forward the well the after. nick yeah. nick asked first so he got the forward Okay. But, I mean, I begged and pleaded. Well, I didn't really have to. I said, Mac, can I write that forward? He goes, uh, Nick already asked. And I said, yeah, well, I guess I expected that. Okay, how about the afterword? He said, okay. <laughs> so I, 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 got, I still have the manuscript because they sent it to me so that I could write the Or Mac sent it to me so I could write the afterword. Still haven't gotten a hard copy of the actual book yet. Just so you know, the book is good. It's good.
0: I don't know. I, I know I wrote about this, and I don't know if I've ever spoken about it on these little podcast things. Um, Patrick sent me, and in, in for the folks listening to the podcast, Patrick—it's Patrick Hugh. Is that how his
1: last name is pronounced? He told me when I met him in New York, it's Weej. Weej. Oh, I would have never. <laughs> I said Weej, but just end it without the,
0: you know, Weej. Okay, so Patrick Weej. um Yeah. It's, it looks like it's it looks like it's pronounced Hugh or Hugh. Yeah. Um So Patrick. Uh, sent me a manuscript and he sent it over a PDF and I took the yeah. little document to, uh, the electronic document to my local Xerox shop and they printed it up and, and then I, and I was actually, I mean, I mean, I was pretty freaking shook up after the whole thing and I was like, it was a heavy blow and freaking 2009 was a crappy year for me and, and, uh, and that was one of the, like, worst things that happened that year and, and, uh, so... I realized I needed to start the project. You know, Mac and I had talked about doing the illustrations and then Mac had told Patrick that he had a, a you know friend that wanted to do the illustrations. So um when so so I felt like I mean I was like uh, it was it was t- t- totally like a uh, a job from the you know from the from my heart, you know, doing this thing. So but I I was a little bit intimidated to read the text, right? It, yeah. was, it just was so I had uh, I had printed up in a three-ring binder, and I had this real formal thing where I said, okay, this afternoon I am going to read the text. It's a short text. It didn't take long to read. I sat on my couch. The house was totally quiet. I had a cup of tea. I put on my reading glasses, and I opened the three-ring binder to the very first page, and I read The Crypto-Terrestrials by Mac Tonys. And at exactly that moment, my CD player... Which has one of those big cartridges, kind of like you know the early '90s style CD player. Yeah, yeah. Um, like kind of went urn shush, clunk, and then spit out the the big fat cartridge that holds six CDs. <laughs> and it was off. This, the CD player was off. It has. I've had the CD player. I'm looking at it. It's right near my desk, right here. I'm looking at it right now. I've had that CD player for close to 18 years or so. I'm guessing, and it has yeah. never ever done that before or since. And whatever that means, uh, I was kind of like, whatever, it, it felt like a, a little, a little uh, poltergeist activity or something in the house. But, yeah. Um, I'm not sure where I'm going with that, but that was...
1: Yeah, but when you first started to read it, there was a, some sort of synchronistic event that happened. Exactly. Yeah, That that, that you, you told the same story much quicker than I did, so... <laughs> uh. I just looked down and the the watch his mother sent me is on my desk next to the other watches I wear. I wore it every day straight till the anniversary of the day he died, and then I stopped wearing it for a while.
0: And his mom sent me um, his leather jacket. Oh, which, really? Which fits me. I look great in it. I have to say. I should, <laughs> uh, it's kind. Of, I live in a little town like in like rural Idaho, where uh, um, you know a leather jacket like that. You know, like I should be in Greenwich Village or San Francisco or something like that to pull it off, but. Uh, Yes, I remember
1: that jacket. I have many pictures
0: of him in that jacket. Yeah, so and it's in my closet right now, and I do wear it a little bit. Uh, maybe I'll wear it today. So here's another thing. So I was talking before about there needs to be a new guard of researchers that that arrives yeah. on the scene, and um, one of the things I've been totally fascinated by is there is instead of like a top-down thing where some you know some credentialed you know uh, scientist from. You know, makes a makes a lofty proclamation where you know he he writes a book or something like that, like a John Mack type character. Uh, instead, what seems to be happening is is almost like a bottom up type you know information in the form of the internet. And, and i have just I've been keeping very close tabs, and I have been sort of fascinated by the people that are writing their first person experiences online. Yeah. And, and oftentimes yeah. they're, they're poorly written or they yeah. you know, their layout is absolutely, you know, like, you know, laughably bad or something. Or, um, but, uh, but what's happening is there's like, you, if you, if you had a set of experiences and then you wrote a book about it, you know, like maybe you'd like sum up 10 years of experiences in a book, you know, and mm-hmm. you have to scratch your head and think back like, well, what that thing that happened 10 years ago, I need to write about that. Um. And instead is what is happening is, is like these people's events, and, I, and in a way I'm including myself in this, are showing up in real time.
1: Yeah. It's funny you mention that because another part of my talk was, um, you know, what's the problem? The problem is the UFO, big UFO organizations have, Done nothing except gather data and hasn't brought haven't brought us any closer as I as far as I can tell to any sort of conclusion answer or except it, all they've done is collect data which is good that's a good thing but we don't need that anymore and all that a giant UFO research community is doing is is codifying a way of looking at things that stultif you know it it it, it, it stultifies the uh, what what am I trying to call the evolution of of any kind of research? So you know, the, my uh, my point number two, I think, is get rid of large UFO organizations, concentrate on smaller UFO organizations and individuals with unique points of view. They don't need to to you know have a central reporting place or anything like that. The central reporting place is available to just about everybody. It's the internet.
0: Yes, and and I think now that there's um.
1: An oh, you know, extreme super advanced. democracy is is makes me happy. An extreme form of democracy, if it can be termed that, with the internet
0: and and like a democracy, you know, democracy can be messy. And some of the stuff that's online is you know crap. Um,
1: and it uh, should be messy. I mean, that should be expected. I would distrust it if it wasn't messy. Like the whole process, or just the the whole process, and also the the outliers. Um, like you just said, some of the things look totally insane or crazy. Or why should you read them? Or you know, I'm glad those things are there. If those weren't there, I would get worried. Yes. Now, it- some, yeah. Some people would say, "Oh well, you know, they make people make fun of it." It's like people make fun of it anyway. People are going to be interested. They'll be interested in it. You know, stop looking for any kind of don't don't look for people to respect it. Don't look for don't look for any kind of. Um, Um, seriousness applied to it by the larger society because it's not going to happen. Take, you know, everybody, look at it in the way that you want to look at it. You find three or four other people that are looking at it the way you are. Discuss it. Do research in that direction. Communicate with each other by internet and by telephone. You can do all that stuff. And then maybe you'll make a breakthrough, you three or four or one or two people. Or the breakthrough
0: may be made um, by someone else, you know, using these uh, first-person narratives uh, these first-person, you know, sort of heartfelt, unedited uh, yeah. reports, you know, first-person reports, um, you know, the, the breakthrough may be made, you know, looking at them as as a, as a you know, comparing the patterns that show up in those.
1: Who, who cares? About, a researcher will pick up a, a first-person account and say, oh, there's a Bigfoot in there. We don't need that. Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we do need
0: that, or they might say, "Oh, the person claims to have channeled you know some at, at some point in their life, you know they're you know we have to dismiss that, or they right. might say, you know like I was on an lSD and they, they have to dismiss that, and you know like yeah. there may be reasons to say like you know I'm cautiously taking this data because the person took LSD or you know it may be prudent to say like you know the bigfoot anomaly is rare in the UFO phenomena, but it is not unheard of you know you you can add those little caveats but but putting it in the
1: wastebasket
0: is is, yeah,
1: is or somebody yeah, somebody getting psychic afterwards Or getting strange phone calls Or men in black type things Or whatever All these things that people are going to dismiss out of hand Because they just sound weird Well the whole thing sounds weird You know, and ignoring parts of it is exa- <laughs> That's exa- that's just what they want you to think That's just what, what your subconscious And the larger society And maybe even this phenomenon itself Wants you to think It wants you to deconstruct it So you can't make any sense out of it um, you know, it, to the point where there's these little camps. But why not accept all this information, like you just said? I think that's, like Carla said, that's where the you know that's where the gold lies. I think is in the in the anomalous details.
0: I'm writing that down.
1: <laughs> yeah, but you said it first. Oh no, no, she said it before I did. not yeah, she she said it first. But, yeah, I, I think we're in, you know, total agreement here. Just the in complete democratization of, of UFO research is, you know, could it be worse than what's come before? Probably not. It might even be better, so why not?
0: I'm going to be cautious. I'm going to, uh, you know... But one of the things that I've been—I and I like, I don't even know what to call myself. I don't really call myself a researcher because I'm really not doing research. But I'm like, I'm like an armchair—you know, like I maybe I'm the perfect example of the armchair enthusiast who just has his own little pet theories. But
1: uh, yeah, me too.
0: Yeah. It, well, you've actually written a book.
1: Yeah, and I'd like to write more, yeah. but I—I I don't know. It's like, yeah, it's like that thing that Robert Anton Wilson says. It seems like if you write a book on something, suddenly you're an expert.
0: Well, true enough. Yeah. So, so um, I feel like I've got a pretty good working knowledge of some of the puzzle pieces. That yeah, be- you do. As if
1: you'd written a book, which is, you know, another reason why I pay attention to you. And I pay attention to people that have um, blogs and sites that are interesting because it shows when sh- when it shows that people are thinking, and it shows that people are thinking non-dogmatically, or at least in a different way. That you know, how can I help but be interested?
0: yeah oh that's good to hear yeah and and one of the things i I, I, um, I try to do is not like I, I have no interest in posting every day, you know like like I have to post every day, so like here's the slot that I have to fill you know like now I feel obligated to like you know like ain't the six o'clock news, you know what I mean like uh, yeah. um, so if something comes up that i'm that like, like I feel like I have the need to share or I find something interesting or I have some little personal synchronicity that I want to share i will I'll post it. Oh, so one of the so in this sort of like whatever you know whatever you want to call it sort of research i 'll say research in quotes, um, I have been bumping into people, and I might have to edit this out who are <laughs> have uh uFO experiences, quite possibly abduction experiences, and then they seem to be colliding or intersecting with this kind of uh, uh, government interaction and i know how crazy this sounds but this is just a pattern that i have seen in people i've talked to and the people don't seem crazy they seem very stressed i'll tell you that uh some of them and they seem like they have been at the receiving end of some stressful life experiences but uh, uh where there is a it feels like there's some sort of government influence that uh That paints a picture almost like the way that uh, Sheikah Bruce talks about uh, the Montauk project, where there's this kind of like like they've tapped into another reality almost. And there is this interesting bleed over from another reality. It feels like they have um, stories that they share that just don't ring true. Like, you know, one woman that I've spoken with um, tells a story about, you know, basically playing the role of a spy but it was before she was born. It happened in the nineteen forties, so she was like a courier, uh, sex slave, spy in the nineteen forties, and she uh, she tells a story that sounds very real, like she's she's speaking from her own direct experience. Um, but but it simply couldn't have taken place. She wasn't even born. Yeah. And so something, you know, some sort of, there, there is a phenomena in place, and it is very difficult to try to define. You know, the people that I'm referring to uh, seem to have some sort of interaction with what sounds like, um, they feel like they've been remote influenced. You know, one of them actually tells stories about hearing the voices of what sounds like um you know, a junior cadet, you know, in the basement of the Pentagon, you know, like with his headset on just trying to communicate with her just to see if the machinery works right.
1: Yeah, well, this sounds like a lot of, you know, if you've read that, what was that? dude? Uh... Project Beta? No, no. <laughs> no, the, uh, what was that called? The Beyond Deep Black or Beyond Deep Black. Dan... Damn it, it's up on my bookshelf. Dan Burrish? No, no, not Dan Burrish. It's a very, very uh, obscure book about a guy that said he was in a remote viewing program um, communicating in remote viewing with aliens.
0: Ooh, ooh. Is this the one where he tells a story about like, uh, like the, the, the war that took place on, the, on Mars and, and it was just this sort of uh, mythic battle between good and evil? It just sounded like some Shakespearean play or something right out of Greek mythology and it was like the roots of
1: the galactic battle that started on Mars? Could be, but the, I found the book I was referring to, "Above Black: Project Preserve Destiny" by Dan Sherman. Now it sounds like it's totally made up, and maybe a bunch of BS. Um, but it hooks in with some other things that people have said, in, you know, hush hush in the background about what kind of research would be going, has been going on. Yes, you can. Um, broadcast voices into people's heads. It was it was done in the 1960s or 70s, and it's probably been perfected since then. Um, yes, you can control people to some extent, at least it was the early stages of it were evident in the 1960s and 70s, so imagine where it is now. And then if you know something that's kind of weird and, and almost frightening. Have you read Nick's um, Final Events book? I
0: have not. I don't have a copy of it, but I did. I have listened to him talk about it at length, and I did an interview with him shortly before the book was published. Okay. So I feel great. I feel pretty familiar with the, the, yeah. the broad sweeping you, points.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You add that into the mix, and you start to wonder. You know how involved are the powers that be in mind control type stuff? Extra human intelligence type stuff, um, and how much can they control either the the myth of it, the experience of it, or the use of it th- for their own ends? I, I do not know. I would expect that if something is available and it works, that some people will use it for whatever you know use. Um, that's not to say that's actually happening, but there's so many hints and clues everywhere that there's something going on, and there is a definite uh, interest in. Um, what most people call the paranormal and make fun of in the in the in the in their interest there's interest in it in the intelligence community and the Pentagon and all that um, I mean, you, you don't have to look at history too far to find out that there's a lot of things that people consider ridiculous and stupid and silly and superstitious that were considered legitimate areas for study not too long ago and and maybe still are we just don't hear about it now so I would not put it past um Certain entities, be they private or, or governmental, to be using the, uh, the, the mythos um, for their own ends and maybe even doing something with it. I don't know. Because I don't think they can, I, I still have a deep feeling that they can't control it. They can't control that, that extra human factor, intelligence, whatever you want to call it, but they can channel it or make it appear that they are that extra human factor. uh, This is just a belief, though. I mean, I'm not saying this is what's going on. And banging my hand on the table, I just I consider it a very distinct possibility.
0: I'm going to sort of tell two little things here. One of so I met a uh, a, an individual, yeah, and she and I spoke to her directly, and she claimed, you know, like uh, all these things on the checklist, and she spoke about her set of experiences where she's very articulate and she said, okay, here we are in the 3d reality. And she made this kind of gesture like a strata in the earth. Right. And then she said, and then above us is the fourth density and, I, and this is like this New Age talk that I have a hard time with, and she made like another strata in the earth above the 3D, and she said up above is the five-dimensional, and way up there somewhere is where God resides. You know, you're getting very lofty and very metaphysical by the time you get above there. And Let's go back down to our 3D reality. And then she made this ver- she made a gesture with her fingertips like as if she was describing a thin piece of paper that was laying on top of this strata. And she said, above our 3D realm is a realm that is... that, that that she called 3.2 reality and she said that's where astral projection happens that's where near death experience happens and that's where remote viewing happens and she says that the government has gained access to this realm and i and for some reason i could wrap my mind around it it's like oh that i kind of that makes sense and the implication as we talked is that like entering this realm you know, whether there's a machine somewhere that helps people do it or whether it's a, it's just, like, psychic practices and, and, and it, it involves, you know, you have to have someone with a profound, like, ESP uh, skills to, yeah. to access this kind of thing. Um, but accessing that realm somehow cre- it, it mixes things up. It creates a sort of uh, mythic residue on it. Like, uh, and, and in a way, Sheikah Bruce, when she talks about the, the Montauk project, it has that flavor to it, it ha- Which is the Montauk? I'm very skeptical of the Montauk Project stories, though no, I mean- the stories that emerge are so foggy, and they seem to like have like either one foot or can be completely immersed in this almost like dream realm.
1: Yeah, I've talked about this way back when I was doing the magazine. I I talked about this with my friend Richard Saraday, who's on Don Ecker's show with him on Fridays we've been talking about this since like the early nineties and what it, and I think he brought it up first. And what he brought up was that there's this, this realm and we've started calling it the symbolic realm. Um, and that's the only way we can think about it because it's like, we're looking at, and this is another model. We're looking at it as a three dimensional being would be, I mean, a two dimensional being would be looking at three dimensions. You know, it's like there's some way to get out into that, Three-dimensional space, and you know we can imagine something that's three-dimensional, although we can't experience it. But some people have access to it, and everything that goes on, and has gone on, and will go on, is represented somehow in some form in the symbolic realm. Every possibility you could ever think of, um, and it's there. It's just it's, it exists without reference to time. And then once in a while, somebody that's good at it or is assisted somehow maybe can enter that realm and affect it in some way or maybe travel in it in some way and even if you're astral traveling you're not really in that realm you're just kind of you've got you're you're disconnected from the realm that you're in and maybe halfway to that symbolic realm and you can travel without reference to maybe space in that realm but it's uh it's it's the, the place where all all these experiences and all these possibilities and all every reality like i said ever that ever has been and ever will be resides it's just there it just exists which is how people can quote unquote time travel and how people can quote unquote remote view it's because they have access to this thing and it and the filter that keeps it from being accessible to conscious awareness is not not working as well in these certain people, and they can they can they can use it. Like you know, every everybody from a remote viewer to a psychic working in the in the at the carnival, if they're if they've you know got anything left of their gift, they all have access to this thing. And then, like you said, and like your friend said, maybe somebody has figured out how to do this on demand or practically on demand, and is starting to engineer it, which is what which is exactly what. Um, um occult magicians have been trying to and 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 priests and all that have been trying to do for thousands of years with varying degrees of success does that make any sense absolutely
0: yeah yeah and and i think that actually entering into that realm you know like it seems like uh just the mere fact that um how to say it, you know? Like if you go to a banjo player and and say like, "Oh, can you play some music?" It's going to sound like bluegrass, right? You know what I mean? So yeah. Uh, so the same way, like if you enter this realm, and the the data you get back from it is going to sound like mythology, and that's just an impression I have.
1: Um, yeah, it's because it, it, it we get back to that language thing again. Yeah, and so, the language encodes how we're going to think about something too
0: are you familiar with um the roots of the Mormon religion at all?
1: Yes. Quite, fairly well.
0: Why? Oh, just just um Joseph Smith, he and and, and uh, whatever there might be some, you know, LDS scholars that may, you know, correct me and I I probably get some details wrong. Um had his golden tablets, which he which he got in New York state and um and then they were written in this language that he couldn't read but he the way he deciphered the language on these golden tablets was he took a magic stone and then he put it in a hat and he set the hat on the table and put the stone in the hat and the hat was upside down so the open part was facing up and then he would put his face in the hat and then he would magically channel or however whatever word you want to use and decipher these tablets, and the story that emerged is is the Book of Mormon. And you read the Book of Mormon, and it reads, uh, which I have not read it. I've you know like read little excerpts of it, and had you know people point out excerpts of it and stuff. But it reads like mythology. I mean, there's like forces of good and evil, and there's you know of you know family members turning against other family members, and and you know hierarchies. And so you know here's someone who who did a ritual act. You know, he, he You know, looked in the hat with the magic stone, and then a bit from that emerged uh, this grand story. And and the, and I, I mean, was he accessing that realm, that symbolic realm, where you know you tap into that, and and the, and when you come away, you're going to have some mythic story. And I just think of like that that book that uh, you know, like all of Jacques Vallée's work. You know, he is so capable of of, of uh, finding these uh, UFO. Experiences that have that that mythic flavor to it. You know, the guy who f- who had the pancakes made in his in, in the flying saucer in his farmyard
1: driveway. Joe Simonton. It was driveway.
0: And then and then uh, you know the, when the pancakes were actually analyzed, I guess he ate one. There were two left um, when the pancakes were analyzed. They were utterly normal pancakes, except they didn't have salt in them. Yes. And then, and then Jacques Velay found what amounted to like an old uh, Gaelic or Celtic drinking song that was would have been sung in the pubs, you know, 400 years ago, and, and it was basically. I'm, I'm doing this from memory here. You know, it was like you know, like oh the fairies, oh the fairies. You know, if they make you pancakes, remember no salt.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I I agree I, I agree with you completely. Except um, I I have a huge prejudice, and I think Joe. Uh, um, uh, Joseph Smith made it up, like a hundred percent. You know, I, like And maybe he channeled a little bit of it in some kind of altered state, but that doesn't that doesn't make it true, and that doesn't I don't even know if it makes it valuable.
0: I, I agreed. I mean, I'm not like you know, like I, I'm not in a position right to to answer you know whether like a, you know a spiritual leader made something up or, or didn't. But right, um, right. but you're looking at it from
1: a, a, a symbolic perspective.
0: I'm saying that you know you you look into the hat, and some form of mythology is going to emerge out the other end.
1: Oh, I see. You mean you, you meaning you, you I us look into the metaphoric hat you or look me- into the symbolic realm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it, like I, and like we were discussing before, that's going to be filtered through all of your prejudices, ex- experience, your. And maybe even realms like uh, the collective subconscious and and what people expect of you and everything. I mean, it, it's it's all coming through that. Um, and maybe some people are better able to interpret that in a way that makes sense to them and a majority of people in their time and maybe times after them too, because it hooks into something that we all universally know to be true or resonates with us. And that's all coming, yeah, all coming from that. All coming from that realm where the perfect chair is, and all that other stuff. Unfortunately, we have to use words to talk about it, and it screws up the idea of what it's "quote unquote" is. Exactly,
0: exactly, <laughs> and that's where we need Tony's to sort of like say what I'm thinking um, in a in a very smooth and in beautiful way. Uh, yeah, and and uh, and while I just you know like I can I can. You know, there's like this thought that's floating out there, and as I as I try to reach towards it to grab it, you know, all it comes out is like you know like mumbling. But uh, you know that when you get into these very complex ideas, uh, it's so interesting that, that the uh, this has come up with before, where you start talking about UFOs. And the next thing you know you're talking about God, or the next thing you know you're talking about like symbolic mythic realms that are that are beyond reach, or you're talking about like you know the profound um, meaning of time and consciousness and and uh, that's the thing that in a way fascinates me more about the the uFO lore than anything by just by once you address the UFO phenomena, you are forced to address consciousness
1: yeah and you're forced to address the nature of what we expect you're forced to address how we interpret our surroundings and our experiences be they internal or external or a mixture of both um, you're forced to uh, look at history and how people have done it in the past and and then you find out after you've been into it for a while that it's not the answer is so, so, so much more complicated, um, attractive, maybe even if you like complications, um, and, and different than what you've been led to expect by movies, TV, and most UFO researchers that you wonder why people are, so, are all huddling around this aliens from other planets thing. It's, it's just so, it, you know, you've, on the spectrum of what's going on, that's like one wavelength out of millions or thousands, anyway, to me.
0: And it may very well be that they're aliens from another planet.
1: I mean, that's... that's. It, might be. Yeah. it could be. I'm not throwing that out. I, I make that distinction all the time. It's like, look, I'm not throwing that out. It's just that that's all people look at. And I don't think it's that simple. And if it is something coming from other planets, what about all this other stuff that it connects in with that's part of our experience on this planet and has been... And, and you know, is very personally connected, connected to us. Why, why should these aliens from other planets give crap what we think? And why do they all want to come here? I mean, there's, there's no real reason that we can go to a planet and, you know, in, in a month learn all we need to know about that planet without even going there
0: with sending a little, a little you know, a little, a little rover on the surface of Mars, and, and then just, you know, there's reams and reams and reams of data about the molecular content of the air and the soil. and, and
1: uh... Yeah, why do, we, why do they need samples? Why do people need to be abducted over and over and over and over again in thousands and thousands and thousands? That doesn't sound like somebody from another planet doing any kind of research. And if you wanted to get some DNA, wouldn't you think you know how to manipulate your own DNA enough that you don't need somebody else's? And if you do, don't you only need one person's?
0: Or don't you just, couldn't you just go to like every barber and, and you know like and just sneak yeah. in at night and grab you know like the stuff out of the yeah. wastebasket basket and get all the DNA material you'd ever need.
1: Yeah. Uh- so yeah, they, I try to go on these shows that, that are more mainstream once in a while. It's like you think about it for half a second and it doesn't really make any sense anymore. What it more makes sense, it what seems to be more um, makes more sense is what Max said and what other people have said is that these things, whatever it is, and I do think it's external to us is very interested in us, is related to us in some way, and has been since there have been people.
0: Yeah, and that, and that, that uh, you know, like, are we, I mean, are we somehow them? You know, are we, yeah. are we connected in the same way that, you know, uh, I, I mean, on, on one level, it's, it seems to be much more intimate than the way the zookeeper is connected to the, to the, uh, to the chimpanzees in the cage. Yeah, um, exactly. It, there's something more profound going on than just that. You know I read in one account, which uh you know like my my mind is so blurry i've got so many I've read so much stuff over the years, and I've got so many books in the house here but uh Me too uh where where this one person said um and this has come up in more than one it's been retold in the same little thing but um that uh they basically said the earth is important because you know where we are, where we the aliens are where we you know these where we are. Before we can get here, we need to reincarnate multiple times where you are. Before we ascend you know, and learn the lessons that you learn, before we ascend to where we are, and they they kind of you know painted the Earth as a you know like an elementary school or a yeah. uh, you know like a, or like a you know like some sort of a challenge that they had to, to overcome. I don't know what that means to overcome. Do we all have to become like you know the Dalai Lama or Jesus before we you know get off this this wheel or?
1: Well, that's what the Dalai Lama says.
0: Yeah. Hey, I hear this is. I'm going to retell a story that, that, um, that uh, I don't know if I've shared it with you, but this woman that I've uh, been interviewing a few times and, and we've spoken, and she's actually one of the people with these first person blogs. That's great. And her name, she goes, her pen name is Lucretia Hart. Mm-hmm. And she told a story um, where she had had, she's had interactions with the gray aliens. Which she does not paint a very nice picture of. She kind of says they're kind of you know heartless and, and automatons. And then she has also had interactions with these beautiful um, angelic blondes that she she sort of paints them as uh, you know supermodels, you know like Irish supermodels with you know with with red hair and giant blue eyes. Um, and she says that when the greys enter her house, they In essence, open a little portal. They zip through the portal. They, you know, do what they need to do, and then the portal opens up, and they, you know, out they go. Uh, Whether they take her with her, with them, um, but anyway. So, and then afterwards, she and her husband, like the house, is plagued with poltergeist activity. Mm -hmm. And when the uh, the loving, benevolent uh, Nordic tall individuals show up, they park their craft. You know, off away from the house, they land. They walk out. Then they they walk to the house. They open the front door. They walk in the front door. They interact. And then she has stories where she's been escorted out to the. Her and her husband have both been escorted out to the landed craft. And um, and she says they, you know, the nice the nice aliens do this on purpose because they know that that opening a portal in the house will allow the poltergeist activities to rush in.
1: Well, that's that. That sounds reasonable, I guess. It also sounds like something that could be organized by her subconscious into this scenario.
0: It certainly could be, but it's a, something I've never heard before. And and it, in in whatever, it's a line I, of thinking that that I was I just like, "Wow, well, that have. is a neat story."
1: Yeah, I think I have, but as you tell it, it's you know, I hate to make people think that I'm insane, but it makes perfect sense.
0: <laughs> well, it makes perfect sense, you know. Like in, in you know, like who knows, you know, like the. the 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 dog may have like a like some sort of like you know figured out something in exactly why the you know the the dog bowl gets filled up every morning. They may have some some story that they tell in them, their own mind that doesn't really match what's happening. The, you know the real reason the dog bowl gets filled up every morning. Um, right. But uh, but I thought that was
1: interesting. Oh, and I wrote something else down here. No, well, there's all these different. We it, it's and I am not unique in this at all whatsoever but i the, one of the other things that's going to be in my talk is you know it should be realized by anybody that's researching this how much we contribute to uh, to the story how much we contribute to each encounter how, how how much our filters are involved you can't i don't i don't think that aliens are coming here from other planets really i think that that we think that they they are because that's what is acceptable to us. It could be happening, I suppose. Well, but if, if it was happening, wouldn't you th- you know it, it would it would seem like all this weirdness would not be associated with it, all this poltergeist stuff and all this you know uh, all all the, the paranormal stuff and all the you know and the and the other things associated with a lot of UFO encounters. It just, it just does, it's too, like you said, you, both we both said before, it's too intimately connected to us to be simply explained as aliens coming from other planets. And if it is, it's far richer than that. And like you said, it's a lot more personal. And if they are coming, I don't think they're coming in physical craft. I think they just kind of manifest here somehow.
0: Yeah, and, um. And maybe the the mechanism that they manifest with. I'm playing sort of devil's advocate here. Just say like, okay, let's say they are aliens from another planet that are that are coming here on like a mechanical ship. Um, the act of traveling here with their berserkly, uh, incomprehensibly advanced technology, that technology. You know, they may just be in the Pleiades, they just push a little button or, you know, use direct thought control to their craft and poof, they just appear here. And the act of doing so, the the act of like, you know, sort of sliding between this time-space continuum, and, and I don't know what that means really, but the act of um, uh, would somehow open uh, open a doorway that would allow... Paranormal stuff to slide through, and and maybe that you know that like the, the 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 psychic energy that gets emitted by by like something like that could create synchronicities. It could create poltergeist activities. It could create um, uh, psychic. Skills in the in the, per, the person who who's being contacted, you know, maybe the person who drives down the road near a UFO um, has psychic abilities that he never had just by being in proximity to it. You know, it's just a, it's just a.
1: Uh,
0: uh, 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 here, let me let me collect my thoughts here. Um, it's a
1: epi- I mean, it's a it's a a result or an epiphenomenon of ha- having those things in the local environment.
0: Exactly. Yes. Well said.
1: Um, yeah, I, I would, I would tend to sort of be in, you know, go in that direction too. It's, it's, there are models, you know, everything's a model because we don't really, we can't really produce things, things on demand. So what I work with myself is just like different models and I don't stick to any of them. I have ones that are my favorites because they flatter some sort of prejudice in me. Yeah. There, there are others that, you know, that, you know, probably equally as valid. And that I don't dismiss either. And the, 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 what you said about you know maybe they they have some sort of technology. We were talking earlier about the symbolic realm thing. Maybe they know how to use that. Maybe they know how to surf that or use it as a you know a public transportation system or something. I don't know. At least for at least for some sort of quasi consciousness, which is which uh, manifests in the local. Uh, uh, uh area as a tulpa or whatever you want to call it i don't know i'm starting to sound very unfocused and insane now but i think you know what i'm saying
0: well i think that like the, the sounding insane i mean so we're speculating right we're in the realm of speculation and, and the act of speculating like you got to go down like whatever you got to like it wouldn't be speculating if you if you kept it confined so
1: so yeah, no, well, the, you, that's all you can do with the UFO thing. You can continue to gather data, which doesn't really change over the many, many, many years that it's happened. And
0: I think it changes a little bit. but, but, uh, but Maybe like a
1: tiny me. bit, but, it, it, but has it gotten us any closer to what exactly is going on? Not really. However, and this was another point in my talk, is we've got 60 years of data or more. Really good data on sightings and <laughs> um, encounters and all this. Wouldn't it be nice to get all of this, everything, in one place and start looking for patterns, unnoticed patterns from before, which is going to be really easy to do now. I mean, Valet did it in the 60s by using punch cards. Very, very, very labor-intensive, time-consuming thing. And he found out that a lot of um, sightings tend to take place at like 2 in the morning on Wednesday.
0: I was going to say, I was going to finish your sentence for you. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, and... <laughs> Can you imagine it, with the computing power now how many different ways we can run that data through, and what patterns we can find? There are there are unnoticed patterns working all through this right now, and they may lead to some sort of understanding breakthrough. I don't know what you want to call it, but that's the value in the data collection. You know, I, I put down data collection a little bit, but not completely, because um, through through you know meta analysis and statistics and all that. Maybe we can find something out that we didn't know before just because of all the information we have now on this strange phenomenon. And, you know, what if we can include all the other stuff, like how many people had poltergeist phenomena in their house after seeing UFO or claiming to have contact with something, and what countries were they from, what time of day was it, and what sexes were the people in the house, and what was their ethnic makeup, and, you know, you can go on. That's exciting to me.
0: It's interesting that the there's a fellow. Uh, are you familiar with Joe Montaldo? Yes. Yeah, and I have a, a like I've actually st- off, he's he said yes to doing an interview, which and I'm, I've got some strong opinions about the way he presents himself, and, and I'll you know and it's one of those things he uses vocabulary words that I that I just choose to avoid and uh, um, and uh, so but one of the things he has been doing is he's been doing a uh, the blood types of the abductees. Yeah, have you followed this at all.
1: No, no. It's, I think that's great, though. It's
0: very interesting. So he claims to, as part of ICAR, which is the acronym for the, the, the what he's running, um, and this is yeah. what I want to talk to him about, is um, ICAR has... Uh, collected all this data you know he's i don't know how many people he says he has in his data bake but you know it seems like you know tens of thousands and i don't yeah. think that's an exaggeration so uh, who claim the phenomenon so in like one of the questions is what blood type are you so uh and I, and I don't have i'm making this stuff up off the top of my head but i think that rh negative blood makes up six percent of the population i'm doing this from memory i'm probably getting it wrong and then rh negative blood makes up sixty percent of the ufo abductees Mm -hmm. Or people who claim the abduction phenomena, which is, that is an interesting piece of data. And then then there's research going on, uh, which he would be much better to speak about it than I could, about um, uh, the genetic lineage of RH negative blood. And, yeah, and uh, and you know how that appeared in the plains of Africa at you know at some point in our right. our evolution. You know, here's a guy that I am challenged by just the way he presents himself sometimes. Um, and uh, but you know he's coming up with research that I that I'm that I think is very interesting. He hasn't properly presented it. It's not like he's like put out a paper that that that's downloadable off his site. Well, um, it's he should sort of riffing. yeah. yeah.
1: He should, or he should write a book and get it all in one place or something. But that's something that hasn't been done yet or in a long time. And the other thing that should be done, I think, you're making me, you're, you're really helping me out here, Mike, with my talk.
0: Oh, good. Right on for me then. Good, good.
1: I mean, it's t- 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 a lot. The, the other thing that, that probably could be done is, is to, um, what, when people have to fill out something about where, you know, about their sighting or whatever, put down blood type. Put down lineage. put down um, what's going on in your life right now. you're having a divorce or a change of life or anything like that. Um, uh, anything. I mean, Jesus, so, just so you know, even something so subjective as how did it make you feel? Or come back in a month, please come back in a month and tell you how, tell us how you feel about it now. Or has anything happened since then? None of these things have been asked in the past really that I know of and I think these are valuable things because they're it's so much a part of the so much a part of the human experience and not simply a scientific cause and effect thing that we can study as we would study, you know, migratory patterns or whatever. There's there's so many other rich things going on in the subconscious and in the environment of the person and in the makeup of that person that that where there could be patterns, the patterns that we've never noticed before that would give us a little better understanding possibly of what's going on, all the way up to and including, okay, let's take this RH negative person with with Celtic and and Native American blood um, going back for many generations and put them in in this county in Utah on Wednesday at 3 in the morning for a couple of months and see what happens. (laughs) You
0: know? <laughs> exactly yeah and in your list there that you i would also include um i did an interview with a guy uh gibbs williams who who studies synchronicity and it was very interesting because like it didn't take but like as we were talking about um uh so so i called this guy out of the blue he wrote a book on synchronicity right yeah like i read some like little excerpts of it and was like oh this guy's interesting i gotta talk to him. <laughs> so i call him up out of the blue he says yes to an interview and then uh Early on in the interview, he says, um, Are you familiar with Bud Hopkins? And I'm like at the other end of the phone going, "Uh, Yeah. Like I thought it was going to be straight synchronous. And he's like, Yeah, I was the. uh like the, I was the psychiatrist who was brought in, and Bud asked me to come in and, and to do, um, uh, no no the analysis of of his abductees, of his contactees, oh, oh, basically oh, to give them okay. just psychological tests, just to see if there was any patterns and and or if they were normal or if they were insane or if they had any delusional complexes, and and he, he just basically said, you know, they were they were totally normal cross section of the population. But um, I just thought that was so interesting. And he interviewed a guy about synchronicities, and he's like, then I realized like, oh, he's like kind of intimate with the UFO phenomenon. I didn't know that ahead of time. And he looks at the UFO phenomena like synchronicities where he's been studying. And, uh, and so, you know, some of the questions he asks about synchronicities are, you know, like what were you thinking about right before the synchronicity happened? Yeah. You know, like what were you, what life quandary were you trying to, to move beyond or what was challenging in your life? Because he says that synchronicities appear in, the people's, li- in people's lives where they, uh, and he did this through years and years and years of having his patients journaling, and then he went back and looked at all the journals, and then uh, his patients would have, uh, they would be in like a life quandary. They would be anxious. They would be, they would be in a place of turmoil. They would yeah. have the synchronicity, and then that turmoil would change. Yeah, uh, they would either calm down or they would just get you know move to a to a different level of their own personal uh, evolution. Uh, that's a yeah. lousy word, but a, their own personal development.
1: They're going through that. You you talked about you know somebody going through some sort of change in the environment because of having a UFO sighting or whatever. Maybe they're you know at this point they've they've uh, involuntarily entered some um, web of causality whereby. Uh, synchronicities are one more prevalent and two more importantly noticed.
0: Exactly, and I think that that's the same thing almost about UFOs, where like you have to notice them, you know, and and oftentimes you know there's like stories of people being, you know, like five people are in the car you know, all of a sudden a UFO lands in front of them, gives off the psychedelic light display, uh, you know, in the road as the car is stalled out. And then, like, three people in the car say, did you see that? And then two people in the car say, uh, what are you talking about? I didn't see anything. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Is that because that there's, you know, either it means that the, the the well, it, it gives you more ammunition when somebody says, well, if somebody's on drugs, they're just hallucinating. It's like, Really? Then, how did, you know, as in Rick Strassman's study, how did, how did, you know, 30, 40% of the people suddenly have some sort of abduction type experience? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's the problem with, you know, people are living in that, that um, survivalist caveman's uh, frame of mind where the only thing that's important is, is what you can perceive with your senses or the extensions of your senses, which are scientific instruments. That's not all. That's important. That's that's only half of our experience as humans, as, as conscious beings. Oop! I lost you. I lost you. You there?
0: Hey, there's a there's a clip of uh, which I posted ages ago. Well, not ages ago at all. Like in March eighth, which wasn't that long ago. Um, of Jacques Vallee, there's a short little video clip of him because I guess they he gave a seven minute talk. At the Riyadh uh, Global Competitiveness Forum, yeah, and um, and in in essence, at the end of that little talk, he says, you know, we have all this data, you know, like we just need to collate it. This is this is uh, you know college level of, of science, you know. There's there's no scientific study, and the scientific study that needs to take, take place now is not complex. It's it's just you know spreadsheets.
1: Yeah, and well, well, the problem is getting all that data and getting as much of it as possible. Get all the MUFON files. Somebody's got to get into those uh, app files that are in a in a garage in Arizona, some in Phoenix, um, enter all that data, and then, and then uh, what's his
0: name, the guy from uh, the UFO Reporting Center?
1: Yeah, Davenport. Peter yeah, Davenport.
0: Yeah, yeah, Peter Davenport. Yeah,
1: yeah, that kind of stuff. Brian Vikes, people, all these people in some kind of central database, and then get them to change their their um, questionnaire to include the things we were talking about. Dread,
0: I'm losing you again you there okay.
1: <laughs> maybe we should just finish what we're gonna say and stop <laughs>
0: okay good good I think the uh, spies in the basement of the Pentagon are getting bored listening to us and they're shutting us down so um, Kate just say huge thanks this went great um, uh, I think we covered some stuff that that needed to be talked about and and uh, and thanks so much I did and I and I as, I wasn't kidding I didn't really have any list of agendas when I when I uh, asked you to, to take place in this talk
1: well, as you, as you found out, we both found out, you don't really need one. Anytime I'm talking to somebody I know that that is sort of going down the same paths as I am, I don't really, I, I, instead of having you know 20 questions, I have five. Yeah. So that, that's how I treat it. And you know when I had Nick on, I had to have put some stuff in for the, uh, for the book. But if I have I don't often have any questions, but I, when I had Mac on the one time besides when he was on with Paul and I, I didn't have any questions right now. I had like three things maybe. Because I knew we were going to fill up that time. Great. So yeah. Uh, so thanks, Mike. Anytime, and I can't wait to hear um, when it's online. In fact, I probably the most fun I've had doing it, and the most things I've talked about that I think are important to me in a long time on a on a show.
0: Good. Oh, that's great to hear. Because because I was a little bit um, like just at the beginning, I was like, oh, oh where's this going? I, I felt like just the first few minutes, I was like, oh, we're. Um, but So that's great to hear. And, um, yeah, so this may take a little while to edit just because uh, we got interrupted 50 times. And,
1: yeah, we that's covered okay. some great stuff. Yeah, I, I think, you know, both of us found that we're not really at loggerheads on anything. There's, we have vague areas of maybe disagreement, but I'm not. Neither of us are so hard and fast on stuff and so dogmatic that we're going to be irritated by really by anything the other person says for very long
0: no and i was never irritated and it was just that that this it's a you know i have a some personal you know some of my thoughts about this stuff are are personal and um and i just want to be cautious with with how you know my story gets shared in a way
1: yeah yeah i totally understand how many to Everybody knows about being taken and quoted out of context, and people running with it, and you're like, didn't you even listen to what I said or read what I said yeah
0: and I've got enough material out there at this point if someone wanted to like you know you know weave a web of 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 uh you know mean spirited out of context you know blather uh you know it's it's out there so
1: yeah, it's happened to me more than once, but this happened about three or four months ago
0: okay, well, thanks so much.
1: Okay, thank you, Mike. And, and, I'll talk and to you. hopefully we'll
0: bump into each other at, at a conference or I'll be in California at some point. And, um, so. Thank you. Bye
1: now. All right, talk to you later.